there used to be this one like interview question that I used to ask people just to gauge like values and purpose. And then I was told I, I can't ask that anymore. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I used to say at the end of, at the end of the interview, and so, and so I, I hope whoever I've ever interviewed, if I ask you this question, I'm sorry, I asked the question, even though I, I, I think it's a good judge of character. Um, I used to ask, I was like, it's a burning building and you hear this screaming on the top floor. What do you do? You gonna run in? You're gonna you're gonna wait for you know someone to help. And I would tell you, about sixty to forty percent would say they'd run in. And I never asked myself what would I do. Never. I I just thought it would be an interesting question to ask. And I was like, oh, he's just a good judge of character, whatever. Right? There's no right answer to be honest with you. But then I see a burning building, and it's about my community. And I asked myself, what? the hell am I going to do? And a lot of people told me not to do it. A lot of people told me, don't write the piece, don't speak out, don't go on TV, uh, specifically people who are related to me. And I did it. I ran into the fire and I didn't die. And immediately you start to see other people run into the fire. Mi gente, what up, what up, what up? Dímelo, que lo que? Welcome to another episode of the Quien Duetas podcast brought to you by Plural. You already know I'm your host, Pavel. And on this podcast, our mission is to redefine professionalism. We do that every week by bringing on a new guest and exploring the conflict that they have faced between professionalism and authenticity. Speaking of guests, the intro that you heard in this week's episode is from our special guest, Eric Toda. Eric is an award-winning marketing executive who's currently working at Meta and formerly working for some pretty dope companies, including Nike, Airbnb, and Snapchat. He also sits on the board of the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center, the Asian American Foundation, and leading Asian Americans to unite for change. He's obviously an active advocate for the AAPI community, but more so for DEI in totality as a proud father of mixed race children. His fight, much like all of ours, is to impact the future positively by breaking stereotypes, biases, and misconceptions. I think it's pretty clear that Eric doesn't self-identify as Latino. And this brings me to a very important point and question that I, I've been receiving as of late. So the Quien Duera's podcast, obviously the titles in Spanish, the mission is to redefine professionalism and the target audience is the Latino, Latina, Latinx, Hispanic community. Although the majority of the stories and experiences that we will share on this podcast are from within our communities, de la cultura, I thought it was very important to also share stories from outside of our community. Now, a few reasons for that. One is that I believe it's important to build empathy across different communities to help people realize that it's not just our community that is trying to redefine professionalism. Professionalism as a whole has been negatively impacting all communities. Our only option for inspiration isn't just within our community. Yes, it's important to feel seen and to see the representation of us in certain leadership positions, being their authentic self and thriving at work, but also we can pull inspiration of similar representation within other communities as well. Professionalism as a whole is not just impacting our community, it's impacting all marginalized communities as a whole. So we really need to come together if we really want to dismantle the current misconceptions and rebuild what professionalism looks like for us. 
So as always, the majority of the stories will be within our community. That said, I will continue to tell those stories and share those experiences of those outside our communities as well to build more awareness and empathy for our mission of redefining professionalism. Now that you know a little bit more about Eric, as well as the vision for this podcast and brand, let's get into the conversation. And as always, we start off with the word authenticity. It's such a buzzword, but we don't often stop and think about what does it actually mean? So I asked Eric himself, when he hears the word, what comes to mind for him? What does the word authenticity mean to him? Unabashedly, not even feeling any kind of shame, just doing you. It's being who you are, not assimilating, not thinking that you're doing it for someone else, not even thinking about it as you hope you will see yourself doing it. It's just doing you. I think you do hear it a lot. You hear it a lot when it comes to people being vulnerable or transparent. And to me, I don't know, man, like I've I've done a ton of these types of interviews. And what I found is that a lot of people change when the lights go up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know know what I mean? I think a lot of people change when the lights go up and the mic's in front of their face. And they're like, they become like an exaggerated version of themselves. I think what you're going to get from the most quote unquote authentic people is they are who they are in when the lights go up and when the lights go down. And I think what that means is you feel comfortable about who you are. You feel comfortable about your flaws. You feel comfortable about your history. You feel comfortable about your past, but you feel most comfortable about where you're going because of all those damn things. You know what I mean? And if you feel comfortable with all those things, you're going to show up like yourself before the camera and before after and, and after the camera. That's what authenticity means. Authenticity means is I tell every single one of my teams, tell every single one of my, you know, the people that I talk to is just, just do you. And if you do you, don't worry about anything else. You're going to show up in a quote unquote authentic manner. Were you always comfortable doing you though? Absolutely not. No (laughs) way, man. No way. No, 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 no. For like, I feel like it's been like, it was like 10 years, 10 years where I, I, it was like, I had to assimilate to the cultures that I was in, to my coworkers. Um, I felt like I had to assimilate and chase a version of me that would be more accepted. And what I mean by that is, you know, when I entered into my first job, there were many times where people would tell me, and I was like 23, that they would tell me, well, Eric, I don't see you as an, an, like an Asian person. I see you as another white guy. And in my head, I was always like, all right, good. I, I did it. Like, I don't got to worry about that. I don't got to worry about that. That's not something I need to think about. Like, I'm just going to, I did it. Right. Was it almost like a compliment? Yeah. And to like me, my impression was, like, was so good that they're telling yeah. me I'm a white guy. Yeah. Yeah. They tell me I'm a white guy. Right. And how wrong was I to think that? Like incredibly wrong now that like I'm 15 years away from that moment. But in that moment, you feel this pressure because no one else around you looks like you and you don't want to be different. You know, you know what I mean? At that moment, you don't want to be different. You just want to be like, listen, man, just let me do my thing. And like, just like, I, I don't want you pointing out like crazy flaws that I have. Like, I'm just trying to survive right now. And I think for me, that was a combination of different things. One, you know, being in a tech company that was predominantly white. Uh, and two, 
you know, growing up in a predominantly white area where there wasn't a ton of Asian people. And so therefore I had like a double combo where it's like, all right, cool. I know how to survive because I, I survived in like my, my childhood. And so I could probably take those learnings and bring it into my corporate, you know, my corporate self. But it took about 10 years for me to unravel that and dismantle that. And even the things that like people were telling me, like I had relatives tell me in order for me to survive in tech, which again, is predominantly white, Eric, you can't look a white superior in the eyes. You just can't, you got to keep that head down. You got to work hard. And this is coming from someone that was, you know, low, uh, they grew up, you know, poor their, you know, their, their parents grew up in the internment camps and they had these survival tactics, right? And so they wanted to impart some knowledge, you know, uh, to me that by saying, all right, you got to survive. And the way you're going to survive is doing these, doing like not looking at these people in the eyes. Obviously wow. I never did that. Obviously I never did that. Um, but it shows you the opportunity that we have uh, to unravel and dismantle all of these systemic issues that have literally, that have literally plagued our communities for so long. And we think that it's okay to assimilate and to, 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 to conform. But if you've heard anything I've ever talked about, I am 100%, 1000% against all of that because I believe that we are better. We're more creative and we will get more, get better talent. We ourselves will become better. Should we not do any of that ever? Yeah, and I, I, I agree with all that. And I, I think it's so fascinating because I think people often assume that it's when you go into your first job that you start the assimilation process. But the example that you shared, which is very similar to my experience, it's like, no, 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 like we've been trained to assimilate often mm -hmm. by even like our families, right? Yeah. And it often comes from the traumas that they've experienced. I, you know, I think it's to protect us, right? Because they don't want us to go through similar things. Like, for example, like my grandfather was very focused on his appearance. Like he believed if he looked a certain way, then like people would leave him alone, for example, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's yeah. it's interesting, like the, like you called it survival tactics. Like I'm getting goosebumps even when, when thinking about what your family probably had to go through in order to learn those tactics and then share those with you. It was like, hey, if you wanna do anything, like trust me, if you don't yeah. like to, to not get hurt, like do this. Yeah, I mean, you, you think about it, right? I, I, like it's just this, like listen facts only like america has a uh, has a uh, a long history and tradition of uh of racism violence against minorities and you know aggression towards people who are not white and many times in previous generations have had to deal with that and in order for me to sit here they've had to survive right and so of course they're going to impart some knowledge of how they've survived, assuming that nothing has changed. Now, I think it's it's kind of my it's kind of our job in this generation to enlighten and, and educate that it's a different world now. It's a different world now. I am having conversations that you, they probably wouldn't have had. I'm sitting in positions that they have probably never seen a person that looked like me sitting in, the, in these positions, and because of that, there's yes, you take with all that history with you for sure. But you also take the opportunity of, I'm going to take that history. I'm going to understand why they're telling me this. And now I'm going to channel that type of energy to hopefully change the conversation. Because I do think 
we have bigger platforms now. I do think we have better routes um, to change that conversation. So I don't need to survive anymore. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to survive out here. I'm actually trying to thrive. You know what I mean? I'm trying to reach for as high as I can go. Like, I'm not just trying to just slide under the radar. That's not what the opportunity is. That's not the precedent that I want to set for my kids and your kids as they go into the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think that's not going to push us. That's not going to push us forward. So, so there you are in your first job and you're taught to assimilate, like, walk me through some of those memories, right? Like what are some of the lessons that you're being taught is to like, literally not even look someone in the eye, which in some ways goes completely against like, quote unquote, American business practices, right? It's yeah. like firm handshake, look them in the eye, all these things. Like, tell me about that conflict versus like the lessons that you were taught versus like your experience and like how that was. I mean, so, so that look, don't look people in the eyes thing, like really shook me up for, for a while. You know, even the comment that people didn't see me as Asian, you know, shook me for a while because to them, they're like, oh yeah, yeah. And they get on with their lives. Right. And yeah, I, I said this thing, whatever. Right. To me, I'm like, that's going to be with me for the rest of my life. Hooray. Right. There are so many of those instances, though, throughout the earlier part of my career where I was just learning who I was, my voice and my place in all of this. And, you know, I'll take, for example, we were in a meeting. I was two years into my, my first job and we're in an all hands meeting for the organization that I was in, for the team that I was on. And I saw something that. I saw a strategy that I felt was not the right strategy. And I raised my hand, I get called on and I said, I don't think this is the right strategy for these reasons. Boom, boom, boom. I think we should do this. I think we should do that. I think we should do that, right? All facts, right? And I could see around me, people were nodding and they're like, that's great. Thank you so much, Eric. You know, we're gonna take that into consideration. And ultimately they took all everything that I said and they were grateful that I, I spoke up, right? I get out of that meeting and I'll always, always remember this. An older gentleman, probably about 15 years my senior, pulls me aside and he's like, he's like, he's like, Eric, let me talk to you. He's like, you can't do that. You can't like just speak out like that without checking off, like, was this okay to say? Was this, you know, was this, you know, okay by the organization's rules and all that stuff? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, this is it's free speech. And also just like, we need to encourage other people to speak up, especially if they have better ideas or else we're going to go to market with bad ideas. And they're like, no, oh, it's like, Eric, you people don't do that. You people don't do that, Eric. Like, like just, just work super hard and you'll get recognition. You don't need to do that. You people don't need to do that. And like, just, just, just keep your nose clean and you'll be all right. You people. And I was like, damn. And I was like 24, right? And this dude was, I, I want to say like 45 or something. Yeah. And he was older and he was dressed really nice. And so I was intimidated and I respected him until that moment. And, you know, everything I'm saying, like, it's, it's all compounding, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm harboring all of these aggressions against me and again, like I've taken all of these things and that's why you hear the voice that you do. That's why you see the fight that you do. That's why you see me do the things I do. It's because I'm taking all of these as just gas, just gas. 
right? I wasn't able to do it then. And I regret that. I regret that I wasn't able to, to fight back. I wasn't able to speak out and I wasn't able to, to wield the words that I do now. And I regret that. But now tell I can't. Tell me about some of those fears though. Like, what do you think you fear? Like being fired, um, being seen as aggressive? Like, I don't know, like what, what were some of those things that you thought? Definitely fear of, of being fired. Definitely fear of being isolated out, that I wouldn't be included in meetings, um, that they would lose respect for me because I was doing that, um, that people would leave me out of opportunities. And in the earlier part of career, you're hungry for opportunities. You're hungry yeah. for anything that comes your way. You know what I mean? And you're also very worried that no one's going to support you if you do continue to speak up, that you will just be, that you'll just be some, you know, outcast. And they're like, oh, that's just like, it's crazy, Eric. Um, you know, that's crazy. You know, it, it's, it, it might be funny, but like, those are the labels that get placed on people though. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Think about all the labels that were placed on women when they used to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, she's, oh, she's bossy. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. She, oh, oh, she's too much. Or, oh, like, um, all of these different, like, harmful, harmful labels. Sassy. That, yeah, yeah, sassy. Or, or you know what? You know, they used, to, they used to put, like, I don't know, cuss words on them. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And I'd be, I'd be remiss to say if anybody ever tries to tell that to my daughter, oh, you got hell coming for you. You got hell coming for you. You know, like yeah. there's, but think about that though. Like the entire female gender, that's the way that they were treated in the workplace. Should they even consider speaking up? Now, imagine if you are a female and a minority, mm -hmm. 10 times worse, you would probably even get fired. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and so I think that's what you're fighting against. And that's what the fears over generations are like ingrained in you. If you, if, if you don't assimilate and if you don't, you know, all those things. Yeah. I, well, I think it's fascinating too, because as you've grown in your career, you've become more outspoken and not just in a meeting, Hey, I think we should move on with a different strategy, right? Like you're outspoken in a couple different ways. One about like your personal experience, but also the experience of like your family, your community. And yep. there was one post in particular that stood out to me and, and I'm going to paraphrase. So like, correct me and, and let me know exactly yeah. what you meant, but it was along the lines of like, I never spoke up because I always thought that someone else would speak up on behalf of me, something like that. Yep. And then no one did. So here I am. Right. But as you start speaking up, like, don't those same fears come to mind? Before Eric answers that question, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. COVID-19 moves fast. And now you can too. If you feel symptoms, even if they're mild, you should test fast. Test positive and at high risk for severe COVID-19? Then act fast with authorized oral treatments that can be taken at home and must be taken within five days from when symptoms begin. COVID-19 moves fast, and now you can too by asking your healthcare provider if an oral treatment is right for you. Learn about a treatment option at TreatCV19.com. This message is sponsored by Pfizer. You're being fired. Someone's going to tell you not to say that all those same things, although you have more experience and a better resume now, but like, do those same things come up? Not as much. I think I've selfishly 
focused on my entire career voice and platform in my own, in the advertising and marketing industry for over 10 years. And I've put up solid wins on the board. I've made the brands that I've worked for very, very famous uh, and a lot of money. And I think all of that, yes, builds a great resume, but it also builds credibility um, and validation in my voice. And while I've only spoken, at least for the past, you know, before the past two years, I've only spoken on behalf of the marketing advertising industry. When I did say something, it, it was reacted with, with credibility and, 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 and validation. So when I shifted and started talking about some of the injustices and uncomfortable truths that govern our industry, like, I don't know, for example, um, for example, you know, less than 20% of the entire marketing and advertising industry, it's actually closer to 15%, uh, is represented by the Black, Latinx, and Asian communities, less than 15%. Wow. That is astonishingly disappointing, especially yeah. when you think about every single ad that you see. How many people that look like us? <laughs> oh, cool. So they could represent us for sure. But are we making the decisions about that? Absolutely not. And so when I started to speak out, yeah, I think the first initial part, when the first time I spoke out around um, the violence against the Asian American community, my wife will tell you, I didn't sleep for two days because I was waiting for that piece that I wrote to come out. And I was very scared. What if it failed? What if no one read it? And what if everybody hates me for it? Because I've never done this, right? Now, if I'm talking about an advertising campaign that I did with a great agency. Yeah, I know that's going to hit, right? I felt, <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. I, I felt good about that. But talking about your skin in an industry that has paid you a lot of money to make money for them, um, very, very difficult. And so I didn't sleep. The piece came out. Everybody told me it was great before that. And I was like, oh, I, I'm going to throw up. It goes live and then it, you know, it, then it does what it does. And it did change the conversation quite a bit, at least for the business community that, you know, are represented by a tremendous amount of Asians. So I do think I was scared a little bit, but now when I speak out, I know why I'm doing it. I know the value that I'm bringing, um, but I also know that it's going to unlock a lot more people to do the same thing. And I'm not saying anything, um, I'm not saying anything salacious or, uncommon i'm just telling i'm just talking truth here man i'm talking sheer numbers you know it's like yeah less than 15 percent is represented by people that look like you and me that is an issue you know and the only way you're going to change that issue is if you speak on it because if you don't no one's gonna care no one's gonna know and also like who will if you don't then who will <laughs> and it's kind of like that, yeah there, and, there's this um I forget what the what the what the theory is, but it's like if everyone lives in a building and there's a crime happening outside, everyone in the building is going to assume like, oh, someone else will call, right? Totally. But then eventually, like, no one calls. I forget what the theory is, but it's kind of like that same theory or, or narrative. Yeah, yeah. You know what? There used to be this one like interview question that I used to ask people just to gauge like values and purpose, and then I was told I, I can't ask that anymore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I used to say at the end of at the end of the interview, and so I hope whoever I've ever interviewed, if I ask you this question, I'm sorry I asked the question, even though I I think it's a good judge of character. Um, I used to ask, I was like, "It's a burning building, and you hear this screaming on the top floor. What do you do? You gonna run in 
you're gonna you're gonna wait for you know someone to help and i would tell you about 60 to 40 percent would say they'd run in and i never asked myself what would i do never I, I just thought it would be an interesting question to ask. And I was like, oh, he's just a good judge of character, whatever, right? There's no right answer, to be honest with you. But then I see a burning building and it's about my community. And I asked myself, what the hell am I going to do? And a lot of people told me not to do it. A lot of people told me, don't write the piece, don't speak out, don't go on TV, uh, specifically people who are related to me. And I did it. I ran into the fire and I didn't die. And immediately you start to see other people run into the fire. And so I do think there's something to be said around knowing who you are, what governs you, the values that you hold. And in a split second, if you do see a burning building, what do you do? Because if you don't see anybody else running, but you hear the screaming, you got to do something. And for me, it was to run into that building. And, and, and I knew what was at stake. I knew what I would be sacrificing. And again, like I felt confident in the decision that I made to run in and, and, and see what I can do. I think it's easy to say, yeah, yes. I'll run into the building. Yes. yes. There's another type of person, specific type of person that would actually run into that building. And I applaud you for that. I'm also curious though, because I've, I've been outspoken about a few different things and I've gotten the, you should have tried to handle this internally, right? Or why go public? Or, you know, I'm worried about the impact this would have on your career. It's kind of like the same people that I would expect to have my back actually told me that they were disappointed in what I did. Um, yeah. and, but then I realized, I was like, oh shit, like, me, like they're closer to that like family trauma old schoolness yeah, of like yeah. fear and not being able to speak up for yourself and all those kind of things I was like damn maybe that's what it is like I'm wondering for you like was it more so the older generation that kind of gave you some of that same feedback as well I, I would definitely say yes to a certain extent and this is what's interesting is that in the initial parts of my advocacy and outreach I did get that feedback like this is too hot this is too hot, especially because I'm having too hot. Yeah, it's too much. It's too much. It's too much. It's too much. It's too hot. Like you're going to put a target on your back. Like people are going to come for you, Eric. That's I was like, they, I was like, yes. And I was, like, and I was like, I was like, I don't know about that. Um, because I think too, it was in a time in which like people could, you know, people could dox you real easily. Right. You know, like, what do you could, mean? Like, like they'll figure out your address and they'll come to your house, all that stuff. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, so people could do that, right? So I think I think a lot of the older people were like, Eric, like you're gonna put a, a, a target on your family's back, all this stuff. And I was like, I was like, I get that for sure, right? But no one else is doing anything. And like we need to speak up. And the reality is it's like there are certain things intersecting for me. The first thing is like I'm young, I'm Asian, and no one else is speaking about this. There's no celebrities, there's no influencers. And I, you know, I work at a company that supports me doing what I do. And you know what? Very important. I'm gonna use everything in my in my power, you know, to make sure people care that our people are getting killed in the streets. The end, right? And I think they got that. I think they got that. And they're like, oh, he's doing a good thing and he's pushing the, us forward, et cetera. The most interesting thing though, was after they came around, then I got the younger generation, or at least in my generation, were like, well, uh, why you? 
really? I was like, why me? I was like, why, why me? I was like, you're just asking that because you saw that I didn't die in the fire. You literally asking that. And I tell some, I told some people, well, you know, Lizette, Lizette was on your yeah. pod, right? Yeah. yeah. So Lizette is a huge friend, peer and mentor to me. And she coached me throughout this entire thing. And I was telling Lizette, I was like, I was like, Lizette, like I'm getting some feedback from not older, not older people, but people around my age asking, uh, why you? And the first thing she's like, she's like, you know, it is funny. Sometimes it really be your own, huh? And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, yeah, sometimes it really does. And she's like, she, she's like, no, 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 no. She's like, you keep doing what you're doing. She's like, there's, there's all you she's like, there's always going to be people that are just like, well, I could have done, I should have done that. I should have done that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they didn't. And I'm not saying they shouldn't because I, they absolutely should. Um, but she's like, she's like, it's very clear then that they, they were probably motivated by the wrong things. Whereas you're motivated by just doing the right thing in that moment and just keep it going. You know, you know, the mission, go for the mission. And so, you know, Lizette, Lizette was a tremendous, a tremendous friend and just like ear to have, especially as these people, my age were like, why you? You That's fascinating. I didn't know that people, I didn't know that you got that type of feedback, you know, from the outside perspective, you know, you're like on good morning America and like every, every like news outlet and all these things getting celebrated for speaking out and becoming that representation in, in a lot of ways that maybe you wish you had when you were younger. You know, you're right. I think I didn't have that type of air cover, if you want to call it that, or just even representation to see people stand up when I was younger, even to the yeah. point when like, I was, a, I was a kid, like there were yeah. so many times in which my pant, my, my family had to leave a restaurant because, you know, someone on the other table was running a mouse, you really? know, someone run their mouth and my, you know, food's not even there yet where the food gets there. And my dad's like, no, we're gone. Um, and that's embarrassing. Right. And it's a restaurant full of people and no one stands up and you're like, what, like, where are you? Right. And so what sort of experience was that? Like, what do you, what do you mean? Like what happened? I mean, you're sitting down at a table in my hometown, um, in the Bay area. And you, you know, you think Bay area is like, oh, it's massively diverse. Um, so it's, it's not, there's pockets. And I grew up in one of those pockets. It's not diverse, but you sit down at a table and with your brother and your sister and your mom and your dad, and someone across on another table is either belittling a waitress or because of her accent, or they see you and you don't look like other people in the restaurant and you start, you know, you start running your mouth, you know, saying slurs, you know, doing the slanty eye thing, all that stuff, man. And what's the most interesting is that it wasn't, you know, it's, it's a, it wasn't an isolated incident. I've seen that so many times in my life where I do wonder like how there could be bystanders and just let it happen. Oh, I'm just gonna keep my head down. Like I'm not gonna do anything to the point where like you have to walk out of the restaurant and no one is sticking up for you. And so that traumatizes you. Like you hold that in your heart or even when I grew up, you know, in the same town, you go and you, again, like there's not a lot of Asian families, but you go and ask, I don't know, a girl to, uh, to homecoming. And she tells you dead eye. I don't like Asian guys, Eric, straight up. 
So you're like, oh, I'm like, I'm like Asian guys. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. I hate myself. Great. You know, you walk away. You hold all that, right? Yeah. And throughout the course of, of all of this, it took one interview, one interview live right here as I'm sitting down right here. It was live on TV and my kids were in the other room with my wife and I'm going through the interview, all my talking points, this is why I'm doing it, et cetera. And my wife texts me a picture of my son watching me on TV live. <laughs> and he's just watching me, right? It's, it's, it's on my IG um, at Toda. And I realized at that moment, at the time, at least, I was like, I don't know what, what any of this is. I'm just trying to help. I'm just trying to help. And the TV likes me and people like what I'm saying. And so I'm just going to try to see where it goes. And maybe I help. At that moment, though, when I saw that picture of my son watching me on TV, I realized at that moment, I will never, ever, 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 ever let him remember me as just a marketer, as just a businessman ever again, ever again. If he remembers me as just a businessman or a marketer, I didn't do a good job with the rest of my life. And so what I became in that moment wasn't like an activist with like a cardboard, you know, thing and like, you know, marching down the street. What I became was someone so secure in my voice and in all of my past traumas to let it fuel me to say, I will never let this happen. Or I'll try my damnedest to never let this happen to not just people that look like my son and look like my daughter, but people that look like you. Yeah. You know, and, and people that look like their friends, I will make sure at least for the, as much as I can, you know, to have them all remember me when it's all said and done as just someone that just fought for them because I didn't have people that fought for me when I was growing up. I love that. Like you, you become who you, who you needed. And I love that representation that your son is probably seeing. And I'm getting, I'm legit getting goosebumps. What even gave you the, the boost of confidence to, even start becoming more of your authentic self, right? Because you speak about this experience like maybe 10 years ago. What was that point 10 years ago where you were just like, I'm gonna start being more of myself? This, this happens to a lot of communities, but more so the Asian American community. And I realized being the quote unquote model minority will not get me to where I want to go in my ambitions, in my career, nor will it open any doors for people that come after me. If I'm the model minority, that means literally keeping my head down, staying silent, not speaking up and just like, I don't know, being good at math or something. It's exactly like what society, especially American culture has painted the Asian American diaspora as it's yeah. like, you're like this silent community that is super smart, you know, moderately successful and raceless essentially. I realized if I became the model minority, it would do significantly more harm than good. But what it took for me to realize that was when I was at Nike. And when I was at Nike, I was I found myself at the Major League Baseball All-Star Game in Minneapolis in 2000, I want to say 14. Mm -hmm. And I was surrounded by other executives. Um, all white, uh, all in their fifties. And I was 27. Wow. Um, leading digital specifically for the MLB. And I sitting around this like massive dinner table where all of them were cheersing, 
And all of them were talking about sports, which is like a dream come true, especially as a baseball fan like me. And I was like, oh, I have this knowledge. I got this conversation on lock. I was like, I was like, put me against, like, put me against any of these guys. And like, I will debate them about <laughs> who's, who's the greatest slugger, Barry Bonds, um, of all time. Right. And I that's will, not, I will, that's not bias, I will, right? It's, like, it's not, it's not bias. San Francisco bias, you know, no, I mean, you see, I mean, you see the cap Jersey, um, <laughs> but, uh, I felt good. I was like, I have two choices in this moment. I could just sit here and like drink, sip my wine and like, you know, like kind of contribute to the conversation or I could do what I do with my friends and just try to obliterate each other with this, the useless sports knowledge that I have in my head from like years of years of just being a fan. And that's exactly what I did. I was like, I was like, what are you kidding? Like we were watching the home run derby, right? From a box with dinner in like the most fanciest thing ever. And here I was the only minority in the room the youngest by at least two, you know, two decades. And I was holding my own with these executives that knew a ton about baseball, but I knew more. I knew more. And I was like, and they were loving it. And I was loving it. And I was like, if this is what it takes to be successful in my career, which is literally just me being me and being confident and not seeing that they're different color than me and not seeing that they're different ages than me and literally only seeing it as you have information. I have information. Let's see what happens. Then this may be, this might be the secret. So was that the first time? Was that the first time where you were just like, actually, like actually showed people some of your interests and, and by doing that, that was the first time. That was the first time that was five years into my career. That was five years into my career. And and I was like, I'm loving this. And then they're like, well, Eric, like, let's talk about, okay, if you were, you really are a sports fan, Eric, what's your favorite shoe? And I was, I was, I was like, oh, you want to go here? You want to, <laughs> I was like, please, please go here. I was like, please, please, please go here. I was like, I have over 300 pairs of shoes. And you want to know how deep I go? Favorite pair of shoes is the Fomposite One Royal OG Ooh. that Penny Hardaway wore in the 97 playoffs, which also Mike Bibby wore in the 97 final four. And they're like, this guy knows. <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, I was like, of course I, hell yeah, I know. I was like, what you think? I don't like sports. And that unlocked, that unlocked a tremendous amount of opportunities. Well, Eric, you should talk to the Nike basketball team or mm-hmm. Eric, you know, you know what? Let's go meet, let's go meet Mike Trout. And I want you to tell Mike Trout all the things that you know about Ken Griffey Jr. because you are going to launch the first signature Nike baseball shoe since Ken Griffey Jr. And I was like, fantastic. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. Right. And what I realized is like the more I embraced who I was, my experience, you know, the, the things that I love, pop culture, sports, specifically the NBA, like the more it unlocks commonalities way past the face value of you're much older than me and I am not white. And the more that I embrace those commonalities and find, found middle ground, the quicker, the quicker the opportunities and doors opened up. Yeah. Yo, the same, the same thing happened to me. Like I was so focused on assimilating because I wanted, I didn't want to stand out Yeah. because I was taught probably similar to you is like standing out is bad. Like you don't want to do that because, yeah. Um, but then by, by not standing out, what I did was fit in, which is what I wanted to do, but by fitting in, like people couldn't necessarily differentiate me and I couldn't 
show off those interests. But as soon as I started showing off those interests, to your point, you start building that commonality. You start by standing out what you become is interesting and people want to know about all of these interesting exactly. things and tidbits and you start to build those relationships. So I love that. I love that example. And just to highlight also my favorite shoe, I have so many pairs of phone posits, but hey. I don't have that pair. That's the, that's the pair that I've always wanted. I see them up there. You see them. You see them, <laughs> man. See you them. See them. Yeah. You see them. That was like, I, love, I, love I literally use those shoes for my firstborn's birth announcement. <laughs> no no for real man because like for like those shoes changed my entire life because again i grew up in the 90s in a predominantly white area where i turn on the tv i don't see myself and the only culture i saw speaking to me was nba black culture to the end like that was culture to me that was culture to me because i don't see myself on tv i don't see myself in ads but what is cool and what energizes me was that culture. And I just attached myself to it to the point where it drove me all the way to Nike. It drove me all the way to Beaverton to, to, to express my love of shoes, to express my love of culture, to express my love of hip hop, because that's just who I am. And I think the reality is, again, like just like we spoke about way early, is that there are so many people that look like me and you that grew up the same way that didn't see themselves. So they attached themselves to different cultures, et cetera, which is about not being something hyphen American. That's literally just being American. That's it, right? And so you see a bunch of people that, that are like us really share the same passions. It doesn't matter what skin color they got, but they all grew up the same way. And I think that's the most interesting thing is like when you think about culture and you think about, when you think about especially pop culture or sports culture, like what? what a commonality to attach yourselves to you know what i mean it could, it could be an airport bar it could be i could be in singapore you know yeah. at a business meeting and in the minute that they're like well eric like who's your favorite basketball player steph curry because you're from the if you're in the bay area i was like hell no penny hardaway <laughs> and they're like what penny hardaway he only played like four real years i was like but those years were amazing <laughs> Yeah, those years were amazing. Look at what he did to shoe culture and look at what he did to, you know, to TV commercials. Like he's the, like Penny Hardaway and those phone pauses are literally the reason why I'm in marketing. The reason is because of all that. And it's not because I assimilated and it's not because I needed to be a doctor or a lawyer, et cetera. It's because I saw culture and belonging in something that didn't represent me, but represented something that energized me. And I think that's what it really matters is like, you, you, you got to attach yourself to things that give you energy. And those little shoes right there gave me so much energy to do all of this. I love it. Uh, and you probably answered this last question, but might as well finish off with it. What motivates you and inspires you to keep going to continue being your most authentic self? Again, like I, I refuse to let my kids remember me as a businessman, a marketer because that means I really didn't do a good job with the rest of my life. Like, I want them to remember me as someone that did the right thing, that fought for their people, that fought for people that look like them. And my kids aren't even full Asian, man, you know? But they're Jewish and and white and Filipino and Japanese, and they're all these different things. And their friends are, are the same way. And like, they're all shades of brown and that's fantastic. But they need someone to fight for them. They need more people to fight for them, for their future. And if all they remember is that I just made little TV ads here and there, or I won awards. Oh, my dad won so many awards. No one cares, but they do care if I 
make sure the government gives their people a national museum on the national mall. They will care about that. They will care if I make sure that federal curriculum includes their people's stories and their friends' people's stories. They will care about that. And if I can use marketing in my advertising career to make sure that door opens, then that means I didn't just become a great marketer and advertiser, but I used it to influence everything else. And that's exactly what all of us should be doing. All of us should be understanding that we're so much more than just what governs us nine to five, but we can use those skills. We can use that success to make even more of a dent in the world where we previously couldn't. And so that's what motivates me. And uh, that's what I look at. That's what I, when I look at my kids and I look at what I want the world to be like for them, that's why I do what I do, man. Mihen there. That wraps up this week's episode of the Kim Duetas podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor, leave us a rating and a review. It just helps us in the algorithm to ensure that these stories get heard by as many people as possible. Scaling these stories and experiences is the only way that we're going to redefine professionalism. Thank you and see you next week.